Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Town City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 593. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have an original story to Starship Sova. Yes, we have Richard Webb's Alienated. Yes, how cool is that? An original for Starship Sova. And... Did you spot the deliberate mistake last week? Yes, did it, I did it totally intentionally just to make sure you're awake. We played Amy's, Amy H. Sturgis' is February, looking back at genre history, and we're now in June, so what the hell am I doing there, man? Go on. So, I'm going to play straight away Amy's looking back at genre history for the correct month of June 2019. Take it away, Amy. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Before I get started on today's topic, I would like to share some happy news. You may recall that on episode 579, I talked about the Kurt Vonnegut Library and Museum in Indianapolis, Indiana, and what great work it was doing, and the fact that it was now searching for a long-term home and had a temporary pop-up in a mall in Indianapolis, but was looking for larger facilities. Well, that good news is they have their long-term home now. A purchase agreement has been signed for a building at 543 Indiana Avenue that is across from the public university and in the heart of the historic Jazz District of Indianapolis, and it's going to be quite amazing. There's going to be an increased museum and gallery space, a larger gift shop and reception area, and currently staff are talking with uh, the owners of the Bluebeard Cafe, which is a Kurt Vonnegut-themed cafe in Indianapolis, to possibly put in a smaller version there at the Vonnegut Library and Museum. They're going to have new exhibitions including an exhibit based on Slaughterhouse-Five, the great novel by Kurt Vonnegut, that is this year celebrating its 50th anniversary. And I should note that the library and museum is already in the process of distributing 86,000 copies of Slaughterhouse-Five free to high school sophomores. Other planned exhibitions include a Freedom of Expression exhibition, an outdoor Vonnegut and jazz exhibition in partnership with the Madam Walker Legacy Center, voter registration kiosks, and exhibitions of the organization's large collection of Vonnegut artifacts and memorabilia, which right now is being held in safekeeping by the Indiana State Museum and the Indiana Historical Society. You can find out more by going to vonnegutlibrary.org, and there, if you wish, you also have the opportunity to support the institution. It needs funds to support the renovation of the building as they plan to move in and take over and transform that into something that will be an amazing resource for the Indianapolis community, for the genre community, a gift that we'll keep on giving, as it were. All right, so as I am talking about Indianapolis, I would like to talk about one other amazing place. As I mentioned in the earlier show, I recently went to Indianapolis to be a part of a kind of scholarly colloquium. About a dozen of us were invited from the Four Corners scholars and authors and screenwriters and that sort of thing to essentially sit around and talk about 
in a kind of structured conversation, taking notes from each other and such, the works of Ray Bradbury and the meaning of Ray Bradbury's works and the importance and legacy of these works. And while we were there, we got to visit the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Oh, wow, what a place that is! I'd like to start out by thanking our private tour guide and host, Professor Jonathan R. Eller. Professor Eller is a professor of English at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. That's I-U-P-U-I, for those of you who are taking notes. The senior textual editor of the Institute for American Thought and the co-founder and director for the Center for Ray Bradbury's Studies there at IUPUI. He is the co-author of Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, the textual editor of the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, and he is in the process of writing a series of biographies of Ray Bradbury. The first two volumes are already published, 2011's Becoming Ray Bradbury, which was a runner-up for the 2011 Locus Award for Best Nonfiction Book, and 2014's Ray Bradbury Unbound. And the next volume will be coming out quite soon. So needless to say, it was brilliant just to get to meet him and talk to him. But then for him to lead us on this personal tour was just amazing. The Center for Ray Bradbury Studies is remarkable. It's one of the larger single-author archives in the entire United States. And it's also a center for scholarship on the work of Ray Bradbury, and more largely on science fiction. It is the home to more than 100,000 pages of published and unpublished literary works, stored in 31 of Bradbury's own filing cabinets. Also, this is 40 years of Bradbury's personal and professional correspondence. That's like another 10,000 pages of materials. The center also has Ray Bradbury's own collection of his books, and this includes an extensive collection of foreign language editions, and also many significant national and international awards, mementos, and other artifacts. There are more than 1,600 rare genre pulp magazines representing Bradbury's childhood and professional reading as well as the issues where he published stories for many years. Noted illustrators sent him original art and signed copies. Just an incredible resource, and you don't have to take my word for it. There is a virtual tour available there at the website for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. You can find that at bradbury.iupui.edu. There are so many other things there, too. Gifts given to him by Hollywood actors and NASA artists and astronauts. Hundreds of the author's copies of major market magazines where his work was published. Studio reels of his film and television work. More than a thousand audiovisual recordings of his interviews and film and television productions and television appearances and dozens of the stage plays produced from his writings. There is even, oh, how I love this, there is even a genre reading room where people can come in and access science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime fiction, many, many shelves of not only genre fiction, but also criticism there at the Bradbury Center. There is a cozy place for people to come in just pick a seat and read to their heart's content. Okay, so nothing makes me happier than a good museum or research center. They are very fortunate they didn't have to get, you know, security to drag me out of there. But I want to point out a couple of things that really struck me about this place. The most visceral part of the experience, really just sensory overload, amazing and brilliant, is the recreation of Ray Bradbury's basement, office, and library. Now, I say recreation only because it isn't in the basement of the home that Bradbury had in Los Angeles, California, 
for more than half a century. But otherwise, it is his basement office and library. That is, all of the contents, including the furniture, are from that office and library. And I believe Professor Eller said that the dimensions of the room are off only by a few inches. So really, it is the most faithful recreation possible. But in this recreation, you have his working library, Ray Bradbury's working library, the very volumes that he read, his own filing cabinets full of his own papers, the original furniture, including his writing desk, paint table, bookshelves, chairs, all the collected ephemera and mementos from his work. It's quite impressive to have all of these things in the same place, available for research and available for the experience of being there. Outside of the recreated office and library in the larger center, I also really enjoyed looking at the film posters of adaptations of Bradbury's work. It was sort of a, a one-stop shopping of appreciating the cultural impact of his works, from the Martian Chronicles to Fahrenheit 451 to Something Wicked This Way Comes. And you know, there are resources there that aren't even primarily about Bradbury. I got to hold something in my little hands that was so exciting. I know you'll appreciate why I was so thrilled. So one of the documents that I looked at was, well, let me back up a moment. You may recall in episode 515, I talked about Lee Brackett, the amazing science fiction author and screenwriter. And I mentioned at that time that Lee Brackett had an ongoing professional relationship with Ray Bradbury. For example, she was writing a serialized novel for planet stories called Lorelei of the Red Mist when she then was called away to write the screenplay for the film The Big Sleep. So that caught her about halfway through Lorelei of the Red Mist, and she talked to Ray Bradbury and ultimately turned over the completion of that novel to him, and so he finished the story. They were in a lot of ways creatively on the same page, and there was a really good trust relationship there. Well, one of the things I got to see while I was there that, that obviously has made an impression on me was the For Your Eyes Only Ray Bradbury confidential copy of the script for Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, the first script. That first script was written by Lee Brackett, and unfortunately she died not long after she turned in the first version of that script. And back in my Lee Brackett segment, I talk about the fact that a lot of the beats that she hit in her very first script ended up clearly in Empire Strikes Back. And there are other aspects of the script, for example, Darth Vader's castle, if you will, that ended up, we see it in Rogue One, heavily influenced by Lee Brackett's descriptions. But at any rate, when George Lucas approached Lee Brackett and asked her to write a script for Empire Strikes Back, she was already suffering from cancer. And apparently, According to Professor Eller, the reason we have this copy of Bradbury's is because Bradbury stood by to step in if Brackett was unable to complete, unable to survive the completion of that script while he was waiting to step in and once again finish what she started. He was, in a sense, her trusted designated substitute. So that was quite interesting to see. If you are in or near Indianapolis, do check out the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. There are tours available, and you would not find a more welcoming, fascinating place to spend some time. If you're interested at all in genre history, you can't miss this. If you're not in Indianapolis, however, do take advantage of the virtual tour. There is also a text-based tour. And both are available online at the website. And again, that's bradbury.iupui.edu. There is also a nice page on publications that talks about critical collected works, 
about the new Ray Bradbury review, about the biographies of Bradbury, and even a lovely page that highlights some of the scholarship created by scholars who have visited and used the resources of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Just great stuff. And with that, I will <laughs> wrap up my moment as honorary tour guide of Indianapolis and uh, got, got no rewards or kickbacks for that at all. Uh, but I do hope that you will check out the website at least. And also do remember to check out uh, the Vonnegut Museum website and see what they're up to. It will be really nice to see that library and museum established in that new location. I will be back very soon with something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. Ah, there you go. Well, have you spotted that? Well, a couple did. I'll give you that. A couple did. So, thank you very much indeed. Oh, what a day, man. Listen, before we get into Richard's story there, twenty I think it's the 21st of June, not far away, the second season of Dark. Oh, what? Probably, for me, my favourite science fiction show, without doubt, so clever, so subtitled as well, but it is just absolutely fantastic, honestly, man, just very clever, the way it's done, the way the time, you know, there's a little bit of time travelling, but the way that's done, and it's subtle as well, man, it's just pure character-driven story, fantastic. Note it, go and watch season one, you'll just be blown away by it. Right then, let's get into the main fiction, and it is alienated by Richard Webb. And like I mentioned, it is an original of Starship Sova. Richard Webb writes long and short science fiction, fantasy and horror fiction, writes screenplays with shit... (laughs) Richard, sorry man. Hey, with six short films produced to date, winning several film festival awards, co-wrote, co-hosted a weekly indie radio show, music show, for two years and was shortlisted for the BBC Writer's Room 2016. He acted as events coordinator for the BFS for two years and was panel programmer for FantasyCon UK in 2015. He lives feral in the wild, carving out stories on trees with his bare claws. And there's a little link there to Richard's Twitter handle. This story is narrated by Ellie Hirschman. Ellie currently lives somewhere in the Middle East in a safe part, we hope. As a voiceover professional since 2004, he almost gave up on it altogether, but was yanked back in by several fine podcasts and audio drama groups. For this, he is grateful. He has a keen interest in learning and animating accents, imitating, should I say, accents, and is currently working on Tony C. Smith's impression. In his free time, Ellie enjoys cartooning, listening to old-time radio drama, and referring to himself in the third person. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Alienated. By Richard Webb. Read by Ellie Hirschman. I hadn't meant to fall in love. I mean, who does? Always wondered about that. Falling in love, like it's an accident, like tripping over or something. Our craft, Perseverance 12, drifted into orbit of the planet we were calling Big Yellow. We were wandering, lonely as a dust cloud, having jumped away from some bad heat back in Primus Sector. Got our shields busted up pretty good, lost most of our fuel. So there we were, just sitting in the middle of nowhere, listless, aimless. I guess I was untethered too, isolated, restless, vulnerable to the gravitational pull of anything that might reel me in. I suppose I realized now how alone I'd been. Alone within a crew of 150 souls, if you can believe that. Tried to get along with everyone, but not many of them were my sort of folks. By-the-book uniform types, all yes-sir, no-ma'am, snap salutes, and buzz cuts. No one else with the same skin as me, that's for sure. The discoloration is just a side effect of the gun-med drugs I took. Kept me alert, but calm. 
eased the jitters, gave me an aim that could take out one of them proto-hominids at two clicks. Pretty darn useful when those things bust out and rioted. Earned me two stripes and a sweet pay rise, but I had to keep taking the drugs so my skin was getting worse. You look like a walking bruise, said Petrov, the medic. You should let me check you over. You think I look sick? Well, it's hardly... Her words drifted off. All mottled purples and blue like that. I've never seen such a strong reaction to the gun meds before. I feel fine, really, I said. Just to be sure, though, yes? I didn't reply. Her lips smiled, but her eyes did not. Listen, I know you get hard time about it. Most just give me a wide berth. But some of the others. I know there are real bruises under all that, too. It can't be easy. You mean Mendez? Pretty rich, coming from the likes of him and the other exo-framers. If you ask me, they're the freaking weirdos. I meant Ciro. Gotta admit that came like a tail slap from a proto-hom den mother. Ciro? I think to myself. That's insane. That's done with. But I don't say nothing. I think you like standing out because sometimes you want to be hurt, she says, just like that. Because of your guilt over what happened between you two. I mean, why would you do that to yourself? I continued. I have chromium exostrands attached to your limbs. Petrov frowns. At least their frames are covered up, but you look so different. I guess this is how I'm supposed to be. Doesn't have to be. Why do you continue to refuse the skin bleach treatments? I ain't changing just to please them a-holes like Mendez, I said, louder than I meant. Petrov was just trying to be nice. I get that now. But Ciro? Holy crap, Petrov, what do you gotta go and say that for? It was true that I'd wanted to get as far away from that part of my life as possible, and so when the chance came, I signed up and jumped aboard the Perseverance 12. They needed gunners to keep the bandits at bay, but none of it sounded too dangerous. Just a supply run to the gen ship they'd been building out in Primus Sector the last couple of decades, you know, drive-by, drop-off kind of thing. Easy gig, and it was all good until we got blindsided by the damn proto-homes and the shit went down. How the hell did they get their hands on stealth tech? Anyway, we had to jump to get them off our tails and overshot. Before we could correct course, Big Yellow's gravity caught our drift, pulling us down without enough juice in the thrusters to kick ourselves clear. The crew was pretty frazzled out of the frying pan and all that. We were too far out to reach any of the rest of the fleet with our satcoms, and we'd lost the admiral during that last skirmish. So morale had taken a kicking, and discipline was ragged. Someone suggested firing distress flares, but we didn't in the end, because you just don't know who's going to come looking for you. It was just us, and that was that. All through the long, tense hours of that gravitational descent, we held meetings, planned some, prepped some, tried to be smart. The research team ran their scans looking for the usual stuff, oxygen, water, food, some sort of usable biofuel source so we could do a quick compact compost and combust and get the hell away. The medic team gave us shots for viruses the bioscan suggested might be down there. The QM team ran a check on supplies, ammo, and Atmos suits. The recon team geared up for a touchdown, kit checks going over call signs and drills. The engineering team got to work on ship repairs, power saves, security lockdowns. The arms team, including me, made sure we were primed to defend ourselves if hostiles came. Turned out we needn't have worried so much we weren't in immediate danger. Big Yellow was pretty good to us, breathable, moist atmosphere, confirmed by our sensors as containing water we could recover, 
plus a bioenergy source, though it would take weeks to harvest and process enough plant matter to see us on our way. Even so, we weren't too sure who or what else lived here. First time out, recon vehicles stayed on radio all the time and gathered a shitload of data about the place. There were no hostile encounters, nothing more than a few rodent-like creatures and a ton of creepy crawlies, but that was to be expected. Like landing in a jungle, only less dense, less inhabited. Good news, though. It weren't going to be easy, but we could make it if we held together for a while. Everyone breathed easier. Second time out, not so good. The recons went further, but lost contact. Thought we'd lost them for good, so you can guess how jittery everyone was back on ship. Eventually, they reported back. Seems they'd all been surrounded by these creatures. Bugs, they called them, only they're the same size as us. A lot of folks pretty freaked out by that, I can tell you. No harm done, though. The bugs don't bite, they said. Recon guys reckoned they were being studied, so these bugs got to be smart. Though one of Mendez's homies makes a crack about being probed, of course. <laughs> Just about any bug would be smarter than those guys. Anyway, we debated what to do next. We needed fuel, but we had to ration supplies. Staying on board wasn't an option, but leaving the ship didn't appeal much neither. For all our talking, the creatures made our minds up for us. They just came right out to the ship. No surprise, really. A thing like that parked in your backyard, pretty soon you'll come take a peek. Dozens of them showed up on the security screens. Cue another meeting on board. Some were for just blasting away, crippled ship or nothing. Some were for meeting them to try and communicate. And, of course, Mendez and his gang was all for tooling up. I left him to it. Doubt anyone even noticed. I just walked off, got an Atmos suit on, and went right out to meet them. Couldn't tell you why. After all the action with the Proto-Homs and Primus, you'd think I've had been more wary of alien types. I guess I wanted to know if they were all like that. Not exactly sure I wanted to die, but looking back, I reckon a part of me was ready. The part that went numb after Ciro. Like I went black with frostbite or something. Either way, I figured if I went out to see those bugs, we'd learn something. Maybe cut through all the BS being spouted on ship. Petrov told me she was the first that noticed me on one of the monitors. Said it was amazing, actually. Minutes passed, just me, standing at the bottom of bay doors and the bugs not moving, just watching me. Then one of those bugs, insect folk I prefer to call them, Moved forwards real slow, or weren't aggressive, more like curious, shy even. One of their leaders, I figured, perhaps coming to make peace. And that was how it started. The sheen of her carapace shimmering in the light as she came towards me. Never seen anything so beautiful in my whole goddamn life. Like living art. I felt it was a she on account of a delicacy in her manner made me reckon her female. But really, I got no idea if they even have male or female. All those colors. Some I was pretty sure I'd never seen before. The way they caught the light. Iridescent, Petrov says. Well, I was just goddamn mesmerized, no other way of saying it. Time passed. Hours or seconds, I don't know. Just me, staring. They got these compound eye-like features either side of their heads. Little hard to make out, but I'm certain hers were fixed on me, so the two of us was just transfixed by each other. I walked forward, real slow, hands out. I got near to her, pulled off my Atmos glove, and reached out, nice and easy. She flinched, but she didn't pull away as I laid my fingertips upon her abdomen. It was cool to the touch, no friction at all like porcelain. Cool, not cold. Made me feel calm, peaceful. No one made me feel that way since... him. 
Her antennae twitched, and I could tell she was taking it all in, figuring me out, too. Maybe that's when we really connected. I guess we just always had this way of reading each other right from the start. So Petrov said most of the crew were horrified, though some were unsurprised. Always thought a weirdo like me would do better at getting along with some not-human kind. But at least it was proof that the bugs weren't about to feed on our brains or blast us to shit. Eventually a few others came out the ship bay to join me. We all spent a long time just watching the insect folk and them watching us back. No one too sure what would happen next. If there was a protocol for this kind of meet and greet, none of us had ever read it in the manual. The insects started to retreat all at once. I took it as an invitation. Don't ask me how, but I just knew they wanted me to follow. Nothing ventured, right? So they led off into the jungle and I went with them. I heard the recon team leader barking in my earpiece to stand down, but I just disabled my comms and strode off, brushing aside the foliage as I went. Me and the insect folk walked in silence, at least a few clicks by my reckoning. The one that came to me first stayed alongside me all the while, like she's my guide. I felt safe, comfortable. Before I could stop myself, I reached my hand out, real gentle, and brushed my fingertips along her back. Her hind wing pair thrummed away, letting me know she was pleased. Well, that's what I wanted to think anyway. A whole new planet was laid out before me, but I could barely take my eyes off her. I was nervous, sure, but that excited kind of nervous you get when you go off into the unknown, too high on good feelings to be wary of danger. And when someone makes you feel like that, you just know. I never really knew what I should call her. They have names they ain't told them to me, but I felt it right to call her something. So I decided on the name Rose. Used to know a girl called Rose I liked. Suppose that's why. I stayed through the night. Nights on Big Yellow being more than two of our solar days back home, according to my atomic watch. They watched me closely all the while, all up close around me. Their antennae twitching away right next to my mouth and nose and ears in particular. Rose never left my side, and I liked that. Felt like she wanted to reassure me. After watching me, I think they figured out how and what we breathe and eat, because after a while they brought me some clear liquid in this little shell-like thing. Didn't smell of anything, so I thought, what the hell, and I drank it. And it was water all right, close as I could tell. Later, they brought me some leaves. They smelled okay, and they were real dark green, so I figured probably full of good stuff. A bit off a bit. Tasted okay, too. A bit like spinach. So I munched some more, and I didn't feel unwell or nothing. Felt pretty good, in fact, like I was having one of them macro salads they lab grow back on ship. So they treated me nice, and I was feeling pretty relaxed, given the strangeness of what was going down. I got food, water, shelter, and these creatures were as curious about me as I was about them, which is more than I can say about any of the crew. And I couldn't stop looking at Rose. Another night passed with me being the center of the universe, or so it felt. As they studied me, I was picking up a good sense of how they exist, too. They live in groups of maybe half a dozen, and these kind of cave pods made of some chitin-like substance. Saw one of them repairing the walls by chewing out the stuff it's made of, which is like wet, mashed-up chalk in all different colors, and using its mouthpieces to paste it on. Later, when the creature had moved on, I checked out its work. It was dried, hard, all smoothed out. It was beautiful, colors flowing together, half-patters appearing, and then blending into something else. They take pride in this, I think, like it's a sort of art for them. Shows they got a sense of aesthetic, as Petrov would say. I bet they think plenty about the design of them, so I was convinced they're smart, too. Maybe smarter than us, because for all that they lack in our neat tech, they don't seem to need any. No electrics, but no need for heat, as it's always warm. Their food grows on trees, which reassured me they weren't about to tuck into yours truly. And they don't need vehicles because they don't really need to go nowhere. They got water and sanitation figured out good enough for their needs. Pretty tuned into the nature, I'd say. Simple, uncomplicated, balanced. I really like that. 
There was something relaxed but efficient about them. They got what they need, need what they got. No more, no less, no frills, no fuss. No need to go fucking it up by wanting this and that. The peacefulness of it all was pretty enticing. Felt like somewhere a person could really get their shit together. Days later, one of our recon vehicles pulled up nearby. The insects were all agitated by that, and I was anxious too. I didn't want a situation breaking out, so I went out to meet them. The reconners looked shabby, ragged, desperate. I saw them for what they were, I guess, crooks and mercenaries. In my head, I'm already thinking of the crew as them rather than us, I noticed. They're just looters with lasers, came to steal but prepared to hurt. <laughs> nice way to get friendly with the natives. But Petrov was with them too, so I thought maybe there was hope. Captain Nikuru wants you to report back, shouted one of them. No shit, I said. Since when was she voted captain? Since just after you disobeyed orders, shouted the recon team leader. You goddamn stupid. Since the crew council voted her in shortly after you left, butted in Petrov. She wants to know what you've learned. I nodded, taking this in. Get in the vehicle, you fucking freak, said the reconner. Petrov said nothing, but the look in her eyes told me it was the only way. Later, during my debrief with Captain Nakuru, which I was pretty close to being court-martialed like I could give a crap, she told me she wanted to go back, befriend them, and then get them to move on. Turns out they live right over the top of some vein of minerals that could give us a payday to return home with. Captain gave me details of what it was and how we could mine it, but I weren't listening. Can't go digging under someone's house just because you think you might strike oil. I was confined to med deck with Petrov running observations on me every few hours, testing for viruses and such. Standard procedure. I reckon she was also ordered to do a psyche eval, too. Only being Petrov, she was real subtle about it, just making conversation, not taking notes. Making a mental note of everything I said, though, I could just tell. So... She said. I smiled. Where the fuck do I start? I tried to tell her what I could. I was so worried, she said. I looked in her eyes and I knew it was true. How did you know they wouldn't harm you? Just did, I guess. Exactly. You guessed. It was more than that. They liked me. Petrov shook her head just a little like I weren't supposed to see it, but I did. I think you just want someone to like you, she said. I ignored that. I'm sure they liked me, I said. Perhaps they even selected me. Petrov raised her eyebrows at that, but I continued. It's like I'm in tune with them. I, I can't explain, except that after a while with them, I've kind of got what they mean, or at least I think I do. You think? Do they speak in some way? No. Well, yeah, sort of. They ain't got speech, but they have a language of sorts. It's all sense and symbols from what I figured. They write? Not in the way we know it. They emit a kind of spray from that long, thin part they all got. Proboscis, said Petrov. Yeah, that. And they pattern shapes into the air, carrying messages in their sense. I just breathe it in like I'm supposed to be reading the message, but really I'm just caught up in the spell of it. Petro stared at me like I'm the alien and she's trying to read my messages but can't make it out. And you told the captain all of this? Did I fuck? Perseverance was in power down mode pretty much all the time so we could store up juice for liftoff. Still a few weeks away. So it was like permanite on board, and much of the crew stayed in quarters when not on duty. I couldn't sleep on board no more. Somehow the air didn't feel quite right to me. Too stuffy, recycled, fake. Plus I didn't want to breathe in what someone like Mendez had already breathed out. I couldn't stop thinking about Rose. The way she and her kin had observed me, out of curiosity, made me feel important, I guess. 
Whilst on perseverance, I felt observed out of suspicion and fear. I knew I had to see Rose, but I was confined to ship, Captain Nakuru's orders. I felt all cooped up and skittish, so I took to scutting around the ship like a dung beetle looking for his ball of shit. One day on the way to the mess hall, I brushed past Mendez and his posse. Sooner or later, it was bound to happen. Ah, oh, shit, he said to me. Now I got to go have a detox scrub. Who knows what bugs the bugs might have, he said, making all his cronies laugh. Assholes, I thought, but I didn't say it. No point. An exo like him could squash a regular crewmate like me, like, uh, like a bug. I felt like pointing out that actually their frames were kind of like exoskeletons that the insect folk have, so they were kind of the bug-like ones. But again, thought better of it. One of them gave me a shove as they went past. Nothing fierce, but their internal hydraulic system makes them way too powerful, and I went crashing against the wall. If I weren't purple already, that sure as shit would have done it. But lying there all groggy-headed got me real clear-headed at the same time. I went straight down to the armory and got myself suited and booted with recon gear and a long-haul supplies pack. The young corporal on duty challenged me a little, but I intimidated him some on account of my appearance and all the rumors about me and the insects. No harm leaning into the rumors if everyone believes them. And maybe the plasma machete I was strapping into my thigh holster helped too. Whatever. I was out the ship and gone again. Orders be damned. I found Rose easily, like I had a trace of her scent or something. Like she wanted me to find her. When she saw me, her antennae made this little dancing move. Yeah, she was pleased. It was good to be home. Over a few more of the day-night cycles on Big Yellow, during which I guessed the crew was harvesting what biomass it needed to start fueling back up, I actually began to recognize some of the scents the insects secrete, as well as some of their gestures. It's all about how you put them together. Certain scent with one gesture means one thing, but with a different gesture it means something else. Somehow I got a sense of what they're saying and could converse. I mean, I'm never going to have the faculties for all the scents, but I learned to make some of the signs with my hands nice and big. They seemed to get what I was talking about. One thing they just didn't get, though, was my face. Theirs ain't all soft and fleshy like ours, can't show expression like we do, and they got no way of reading it. Just fascinating to them. They couldn't stop staring at me, inspecting me with those big multifaceted jewel eyes of theirs. <laughs> Who could have thought my pretty face was so interesting? Next time, it took much longer before the reconners came track me down. Two weeks or more, I reckoned. I noticed it first in the reaction of the insects, antennae all twitching at once, some frenetic scurrying around. Minutes later, I picked up on the sound of vehicles rumbling through the undergrowth. Typical of them recons. No attempt at stealth, like they didn't have anything to be afraid of, as if this place was their backyard. I got my energy rifle and tried to tell Rose in the best way I could to stay put and keep all her folk together. I weren't sure if she got my meaning, guess she had never seen me so anxious either, but I couldn't hang around in case it was going to go down bad. I first got sight of them from a click away, three recon buggies crashing through the foliage, breaking it all down under their wheels, scattering anything that lived in the undergrowth, destroying homes, lives too, like a bunch of raging orcs on a maiden rampage, too horny for their piece of action to ever think about the damage in their wake. Well, I had some red mist of my own, and though I wanted to scream every curse I knew, I ain't ever been much for standing around yelling. So I got myself tucked up high into the leafy canopy, well out of their sight line, and waited as they got closer. Eventually, they stopped and got out. They were all kitted up for the kill, a dozen or so of them. Petrov was there, too, so it meant they were going to at least try playing good cop first. The reconners scattered around and took up guard positions. Most of them weren't really watching out, though. Just shooting the shit, chewing backy, swigging liquor. 
That told me just how far discipline had slipped back on Perseverance. The old admiral would have had them in the brig for that, but under this new captain, things weren't running so tight. Slack regimen, arrogant attitude, I could see it all in their swagger. Kings of the frickin' jungle. I knew now there was nothing stopping them from crossing the line. Petrov stayed in the vehicle. She looked like she was about to puke, all tense and frowning. One glimpse of her face was enough to tell me exactly what this was all about. I heard one of Mendez's goons on the satcom. Perseverance, this is recon. We're in position. What's the order? Up in the trees, I couldn't hear what the reply from ship was, but I saw the dude on the radio give a nod to Mendez, and he pumped his hand rifle. The rest of his crew of XO framers primed their tools. Formation on my lead, he yelled. The rest of his crew of XO framers primed their tools. Some were grim-faced, but some had these shit-eating grins that got me real riled up. I got comfy on my belly, got my energy rifle sighted, and stilled my breathing. I lined up one of the grinners and squeezed the trigger. He went down, a nice neat lays hole in his leg. I knew the exo-frame would stop it going right through bone, but it would sting like a motherfucker, and he'd be down for a while. The others were suddenly on full alert. Some loosed off a couple of rounds, but at nowhere in particular. They didn't have a freaking clue where I was. I took another, through the shoulder this time. He squealed. Petrov will fix you, I thought. Just go back to ship. Go back. Go back. Mendez hollered at him to hold fire. All went still for a few seconds, which I let hang in the air. Then I popped one more, right on the butt. Had to get a hold of myself so as not to laugh my ass off as he went down, clutching his. They weren't going to kill him, though. Got to draw the line somewhere. They were scurrying for cover, squatting down by the buggies. They looked scared, which was rare for a bunch of exos. Too used to wading in toe-to-toe. That's fine against proto-hominids out in Primus Sector where pace and power count. Don't count for shit against a sniper with a grudge. Petrov got out of her vehicle. She walked towards my position like she knew exactly where I was going to be. She was unarmed. At least not with weapons. She brought a different type of ammunition with her, always. Mendez yelled at her, but she knew I weren't going to shoot her. Smart woman. Too smart for me. It's just me, she said, scanning the tree line for a sight of me. Talk to me. I didn't say nothing in return, though. If I shouted down, I would have given away my position. I slid down through the vegetation, but stayed out of sight. Petrov stopped at the edge of the clearing. She faced the foliage as if she were talking to it. I was only a few dozen yards from her by this point, hidden by leaves. Look, I know things didn't work out on ship, she said. But this is a chance for you to get back into Captain's good books. Reckon Captain can go stick her books where she likes. I said it quiet so only Petrov would hear. She turned to face the direction my voice had come from. I suppose that is a no, then, she said in a low tone. I had hoped your sudden departure from Perseverance was your way of throwing yourself into a task, in that way you do sometimes. Well, I've sure thrown myself into something, I guess. You really mean to stay here, don't you? Petrov said it like a statement, not a question, because she already knew the answer. She looked sad and shook her head. I'd seen that look before. Way too many times from way too many people. My folks, my crewmates, from Ciro. Means the same whoever it comes from. Disappointed in you. Only one never did it was Rose. Suddenly I was aware of her just behind me. She weren't supposed to be here, and I was goddamn terrified for her. But Rose inclined her head parts towards, like she wanted to tell me everything's okay. I put my hand onto her back. I felt her coolness, the gentle thrum that vibrates through her. Watched the villi in her nep oscillating, like they were dancing in the breeze. Something so calming about her presence that I can't explain. There's something good here for me. I whisper in Petrov's direction. She nodded slowly. How do you know you'll be safe? I don't, but I ain't exactly safe on board, neither. I saw Mendez edging forward, a few hundred feet back behind Petrov. 
The insect folk actually like me, I added. Trust me, too, I think. What will you do? Watch, learn, live. No orders, no drills, no hassles. Just exist. You'll get bored. I doubt it. Find these creatures pretty interesting. Don't need much else. Petrov's shoulders sagged. She'd tried. Mendez was much closer now. Blaster raised. You got one chance to help us move them out. Only way I'm not going to blast you to hell, you stupid bug fucker. That's so like him. Damned Mendez. Wanted to kill everything he came across that weren't like him. As if being like him was so great. He never understood the insect folk. Never wanted to. And you kill what you fear. And you fear what you don't understand, right? Well, maybe I never really understood that guy. But I definitely feared him. So I killed him. One shot. A beauty. Exactly where I knew it would pass through his exo-frame. Surgical precision. Cutting out a cancer, you could say. He stared at the hole in his side as his legs buckled. All of Mendez's crew were pretty much stunned. They shouted and cursed, made threats, the usual. They were going to start blasting those guns any second, and this time they'd know where to aim, but it was like they were waiting for someone to give them the order. Petrov turned round to face them. She held up her arms, palms out. No! she yelled. Everyone froze. She went over to one of them, took his satcom radio. I heard her asking to speak to the captain. She got pretty worked up, but I didn't hear what she said. Eventually she was done talking, and just like that, without ever looking over her shoulder, Petrov got them to haul Mendez's body into a recon vehicle and then to move out. Guess I made my choice and I got to live with it. Strange thing was, I actually shed a few tears, mostly from all the adrenaline fizzing round in me, but it was the first time I killed a person, if you can call Mendez a person rather than just a fucking animal. Sometimes things just creep up on you like that. You should have seen the reaction from the insects once Rose and I got back amongst them, though. They came all around me, all buzzing and stuff. Guess they wouldn't have seen no one cry before. They all seemed to stare at the tears streaking down my cheeks. Like they got to study and process it, just like Petra would have. Rose stayed up close, stroking my face with her antennae. So gentle, like she was trying to comfort me. And it worked. Sensitive folk, me insects. Life went on. Life went on, and I was learning more all the time. I was watching them chatter with their scent gestures, getting a handle on it all, and I think I figured out what Rose found so curious about me. They love colors, and I think to them certain colors are auspicious. There's a word Petrov would have used. A fine word for lucky, but I like the sound of it. Anyway, purple is their thing here, and what with me looking like a damsonberry because of the gun meds, I think I was kind of a good omen. There never was a sexual thing with me and Rose. I haven't even figured out yet how they do it, to be honest. But I could live without that. We had ourselves a sort of intimacy that was like a stage beyond sex. A feeling of well-being, without all the huffing and puffing that goes with it. Not too sure they consider themselves individuals in the same way we do. Everything is social with them, all about the group. I think they even share thoughts. Sure as shit, that would freak out most folk back home. But the insects make it work. Instant access to information, ideas, decisions. Got an equality to it which I like. Like everyone is part of the community. Everyone matters. A lot we could learn from that. But then again, not sure I'd want to know the thoughts of guys like Mendez. But anyways, I don't have to think of them no more. Perseverance was on its way a good while ago. Heard it from miles away. Rose has been spending much of her time alone of late. Not so much with her kind, but not so much with me neither. I'm figuring she's been getting a bit of a hard time from some other of the insects. I'm pretty sure I'm the reason. Don't know if I make them nervous, because maybe they didn't reckon on me sticking around. Or maybe I'm just a little too strange for them after all. 
but Rose hasn't been interacting with the rest like normal. Maybe my weirdness is leaving its taint on her, too. I wonder if being close to me was just some sort of interesting experiment, or maybe even some sort of rebellion against the ways of her own kind. Perhaps some attempt on her part to be different. The other day, several of them surrounded her, all frantic gesturing, and there was a definite sour note in the air. Rose was low on her hind legs, like she was hemmed in by them all. I saw a few of them gesture in the direction of me, and also my laze gun, which was propped up inside the pod. I reckon they're still pretty shaken by what happened with Mendez. Probably the biggest thing to ever happen around here. It was a first contact with them, too, of course, except they just can't fly off never to return, nor can they just forget all about it, not with me still here. Maybe I thought I could be their protector, but now Perseverance is gone, I bet they're all wondering exactly who they really need protecting from. Rose turned in my direction, and then away. She didn't respond when I waved to her. Don't have to be human to get what that meant. Maybe now that my gun meds are wearing off and my skin ain't so colorful, I'm not as exotic to them as I was, or as auspicious. I watched as she crawled away to an empty pod. The sheen of her carapace shimmering in the light as she turned away from me. Never seen anything so beautiful in my whole goddamn life, like living art. I could never hurt her, or any of them for that matter. I've broken beautiful things before, and I ain't going back to that. I pick up my lay's gun. A few of the insect folk are watching me, but that's okay. I want them to watch, even if Rose can't look my way. I dismantled the lay's gun piece by piece, laying each part out carefully on the floor in front of me, hoping my meaning is clear. You kill what you fear, and you fear what you don't understand, right? Well, I understand, so there's nothing to fear. Once it's done, I sit there, knees up into my chest. It is a damned humid night. I just stare at what is left of my gun, just to scatter her pieces that didn't make sense. Parts without partners. Odd-shaped bits that have no meaning when they're apart from the others. I've been dismantled. I'm a piece apart. Reckoned I would head out once it gets light. I think of Ciro all those years ago. And I feel cold. And there you go, Richard, sir, Richard... Thank you so much. Indeedy, thank you. And Ellie, lovely to have you on, Squire. Thank you indeed. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been an honour. So that is today's show. Like I say, sorry about messing up Amy's there, but we've had it now and it's just fine. Amy, thank you so much indeedy. Don't forget, PayPal, yes, PayPal or Patreon. I got them mixed up round there. If you want to kind of support the show, that is fantastic. Please pop over and do your, do your stuff, do your deeds. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. Signal getting through, turn on your radio.
Get out there, bye. 